Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey friends, welcome to a special edition of the Tennis and Bagels podcast. We have been missing in action for a few days now, almost a month, but that's because we had the off-season, whatever you want to make of that in the tennis world. Um, but yeah, now I'm pretty excited because we're looking ahead to 2023. We're going to look at what what kind of things that took place in 2022 in the players and, you know, get hyped for the next season. So I'm really happy to have Owen Lewis join me. How are you doing today, Owen? I'm doing well. And yeah, we apologize for the lack of minute-by-minute um, minute recaps of various exhibitions going around uh, uh, around the world. But um yeah, you know, I'm also a little bit burned out. And um, like you said, there hasn't been, you know, an official big tennis event for ranking points in a little bit. Um, so I thought it'd be fun to kind of reflect on the majors in 2022 and then look ahead to 2023, come out with some predictions. Yours will obviously be better than mine because that is how it's gone in the past. Um, so looking forward to that. Yeah. One of my favorite things about predictions is I equally love being wrong than I do being right because <laughs> it just makes it so much more exciting and it's already kind of very unpredictable at times especially in 2022 i just felt like with um with the whole situation with like novak not playing two majors and you know wimbledon you know banning belarusian and russian players it, it felt like there were some openings for a lot of players and there were some opportunities and uh we'll look ahead to see like kind of who missed out who took advantage of them who is best suited for a great 2023. So all of that is really fun. It's a really fun exercise to do, right? But I guess we can start with the majors. In Australia, there were plenty of good matches um, on the men's and women's side. So what are some that, you know, maybe stood out to you and uh, players that you look forward to seeing how they'll do this year? That's a good question. I mean, I think Australia was probably the best major of the year to me. Um, Like, as we know, for people in the U.S. and various other places, it's horrible sleep schedule-wise. I, I basically those two weeks stayed up during the nights, went to classes during the day, and then slept in between. Um, I think I did three full all-nighters in the two weeks, um, and it was worth it because I saw a lot of great tennis. I think a couple that jump out right away are um, Naomi Osaka and Amanda Anasimova, um, I think in the fourth round, um, maybe third Yeah, third round. round. Yeah, third that, round. Yeah. That was just like a killer match, especially the last several points. Um since they both hit such a heavy ball and they have so much easy power, they were just like blistering the ball in these cross court rallies. And then whoever pulls the trigger first would hit a winner down the line. Um, and at the end of Anasimova just went uh, nuclear in the last few points of the tie break and, um, and won saving a couple of match points, which was interesting too. Yeah. That, that's a great place to start because that's probably, that was probably my best match for the women's side in the tournament and I and I just felt like it had that added layer of excitement because the winner was going to play Ash Barty. Yeah. And uh, and Anissa Mova was in great form like she had just won a title before. She was looking really good. I think she had Darren Cahill in her corner as well. And there were two match points that she had to save as well in that 
um, in that game before it ultimately went to the tiebreak. And Osaka was playing good. Like it was, yeah. um, it was a yeah, good version of Naomi. And, and, uh, and Isimova just came through. And like you said, just going for the backhand on the lines when she could. I love her backhand in general. And I, I actually do think she had a very good year um, overall. It's just that uh, towards the end of the year, she suffered another injury and couldn't really give her best at the U.S. Open. But I think she made quarterfinals at Wimbledon, fourth round of Roland Garros, and fourth round of uh, Australia, losing to Ash Barty, and I, I guess um, you know winning a few games, which was really hard against Barty in that tournament, yeah. as we know. So I think, so I think it's going to be fascinating to see uh, how both of them do this year. Because I remember Anisimova when she first broke out on the scene. I think. And Roland Garros 2019 is when she had a really big run, like got all the way to the semis, I think crushed Halep along the way. And then um, was up a set and three love on Ash Barty. And then Barty ended up winning the Roland Garros and that kind of, then kind of her career took over from there. But it was, but, but she's really capable of a lot of great things. Like I love her ball striking. She moves decently well. She has a good foundation. Reminds me a little bit of the ATP version of Yannick Sinner. They're both roughly around the same age. They're pretty good ball strikers. Yeah. I think she doesn't quite have the um like generational type athleticism that maybe Sinner has, but um she definitely is very good off both wings and yeah can be a start test for most top players when she's I think she has more easy power than anyone on tour, really. Like um I think she's the the player where it's most dangerous to leave a ball hanging. And um because she can just demolish it put insane pace on the ball from either wing and you know obviously yeah. she can be a little a little erratic um but when she's on i think there's no more dangerous opponent um and that that reminder of Barty waiting in the next round i had actually forgotten about i remember i wanted to be annoyed at not getting an osaka Barty match um but the match between uh Anisimova and osaka was so good that i wasn't annoyed um but in retrospect, I think it would have been really, really interesting to see that because Bardi just had such an easy time for the most part at the Australian mm-hmm. Open. Um, and, and, you know, in the final, she was down 5-1 to Collins in the second set. But once she got going, I think she rescued that that set um, pretty comfortably, 7-2 in the tiebreak. And, you know, Osaka has the game to to challenge Bardi. I think, like, she would give her issues in the um, backhand-to-backhand rallies. Um it's got a great forehand that could go toe to toe with Barty. Um, one of the very, very few who could like maybe outserve Barty. Um, and um, now, kind of tragically, we're never going to see that matchup. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, but yeah, kind of transitioning to um, to Barty. Like I, I had forgotten how dominant she was at that Australian Open. Like she was not even dropping serve for the most part. Yeah, I mean, she like won the tournament. I think dropping just thirty games in total and. Her only real test came in the final against Danielle Collins when she was five one down in the in the second set and managed to pull that out. And now that I think about it, it's an even bigger accomplishment, especially she knew that she was gonna retire before um yeah. like after that tournament and like it was pretty much Wimbledon. I think she had pretty much had her mindset on retirement um after she won it last year and then this year this just felt like the icing on the cake. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, what a shock that was for the WTA overall, like when she announced her retirement. Yeah. And we thought we were going to be in for like several world number ones. And, um, you know, it was going to be like a really tough time transitioning for most players. And it kind of was in, in, in a way for the women's game. But Igor Sviantek obviously had a lot of other ideas and right. just just took the baton and just raised it to an absolutely new level where now we're... Some people are even having the conversation. It's super early, but some people are already talking about her as a potential GOAT 
you know, because of because at, at the pace that she if she keeps it up like this. But it's just so um it's just so amazing how quickly the discussion became from who can beat Ash Party to like who can beat Igor Shvantek. It was like yeah. in a matter of a month. Yeah, and I I mean I think Goat or even a goat is going way too far, way too early. But I think like yeah. an all-time great isn't out of the question, right? Like I think kind kind of like you were saying already, Sviantek now is sort of where Barty was after the Australian Open. You know, like yeah. three majors, world number one, picking up steam, um, sort of in that place where it's like there's a little bit of an air of invincibility even when they're at their best. Um, right, and and she's in that phase of her career where she's not an all-time great yet. But if she continues on this pace, if she keeps improving, which would be insane because her game is already incredibly good, um, it's so easy to project like gigantic numbers of majors. But yeah, I, I think Barney kind of showed us the the danger in in making predictions like that because mm-hmm. I think like I think her rationale for retiring made sense. Like she had already achieved yep. a lot. Um, why should she spend another ten years of her life achieving a lot of the same stuff she had already done? Like she ticks pretty much all the boxes i mean you know career slam like 10 majors she didn't do that but who does like five more than five but like a handful of people ever like not everyone wants that yeah exactly and she knew what she wanted and it seemed like you know obviously the travel the grind the daily life of being a professional tennis player day in and day out on the tour certainly took its toll and she was very honest about it and um definitely it's like you know she has she has achieved pretty much everything she wanted besides besides the US Open but even in doubles she made four major finals of she made a major final of all four and won one so it's like yeah. and she had this insane number of weeks at number 1 and she proved herself on all surfaces so it's and she was I think she was 25 and Shiontek right now is 21 which is crazy because it's yeah. like you might not even have seen the best of Iga and what she's already doing is so generational and it and uh, you know you feel like she's so good on clay that it's that it seems I'm already predicting that she'll win at least one major next year. And yeah, I, I mean that you know, that feels safe, right? Like I feel like yeah. she'd even go at least two. Um, yeah, I, like I I think she'll win in Australia because she hasn't won there yet. Uh, this year she wasn't the beast on hard court there that she is now. Um, but right. but yeah, it's it's interesting to think about. Um, I mean, because she is so young, like it's not. And I, I feel like people will be annoyed at me for making this comparison, but I, it's not entirely different from like where Federer was like around this point of his yeah. career, you know, cause he had that first year when he won the major and then, and you know, Iga had, she didn't win one in 2021, but then Federer has like this very dominant 2004 where he just like wins a ton of stuff. And after that, it's like, okay, he's the guy, how far can he go? And you know, Iga's year this year wasn't as dominant as Federer's 2004, but I feel like she's in a similar place. Like when she's on, no one can beat her. She's fantastic on hard and clay now. Um, I, I feel like she can get grass in the future. Um, and it just feels like the entire world is just like stretched out there in front of her, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it takes, um, it takes a peaking performance to beat her and something out of the ordinary, like a Daniel Collins or, you know, Ostapenko, you know, firing those return winners. Right. And it's, um, yeah, and and it's just like, you know, okay, she didn't win the WTA finals and she lost in the third round of Wimbledon, but it's like, you know, what she did, like in between, she also went on a 37 match winning streak, like won six titles in a row. Seven matches. It's insane. We've never seen that before in this century. So it's like, and, and it's, and you're right, like it does seem repeatable. 
not 37 matches in a row per se, but, you know, winning all these titles again, like it feels like she's already ticked off a lot of boxes and there's just, yeah, like, you know, she's going at that rate, which is of those all time greats. And, you know, it remains to be seen whether we'll, we'll, we'll see, like, you know, a rejuvenated Krajikova is something that I find interesting. Krajikova yeah. obviously went on that run after the US Open and she won Roland Garros last year, got to number two in the world. And, you know, was suffering from injuries all throughout the year and then finally hit her stride at the end of the next year. So that's probably another interesting storyline for me is the potential rivals um, of, of Shiantek. And I think Krajikova probably has to be up there, having beaten her in a final, for me, one of the best matches all year. Those struggle finals. Last game especially. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah so, um, and she's also proven herself as an all-court player. So I'm interested to see if that becomes a rivalry and hopefully... And I'm also interested to see if Sabalenka, Jabor, Garcia, players like that, especially Garcia, the second half of the year that she had was really amazing as well. Winning in Cincinnati and winning the year-end championship and going deep at the U.S. Open. I think even though she got here five years ago, Garcia, and she's here now, um, I think having been through that whole experience and understanding how she needs to play, which is like, you know, stepping in, taking the return super early, coming in, you know, being aggressive and like sticking to that game plan and having confidence in it. Mm-hmm. I feel like she she has a much better understanding of where she is as a player now. Yeah, but it's also going to be hard to sustain and see what she actually does at the Australian Open because obviously this happened with Muguruza last year, and Muguruza yeah. had one of the worst years she's ever. She's probably this was probably her worst year ever, and it's, so it's and, and so it's tough to predict these kind of things. But I just I like where the women's game is headed because while Eva is super dominant, I feel like there are still players who can challenge her on. And on different surfaces and i still uh think it's going to be pretty competitive overall yeah i so i agree with pretty much everything you said but i also think the key word there that you said is challenge like as yeah. as competitive as other players are like let's be honest like Iga doesn't have a rival right now like jabir yeah. has had two shots at her in um or not not two major finals yeah. but you know u.s open final rome final and the second set of the u.s open final was quite close but like she wasn't really in either of the matches. Like she didn't yeah. have a lead. Um, you know, Krajikova, that Ostrava final was incredible, but her peak is not what Shviontex is. Um mm-hmm. Sabalenka can maybe match her peak, but she has a much harder time finding it. Um so when she's off, yeah. which is a lot more of the time, it's difficult for her. Um I like I think Garcia looks great, but I, I think consistency is also a concern there. Um, so, like, as of now, I think she could have a rival, but she doesn't at the moment. Um, yeah. And and so, like, I, I agree with what you said. Like, it's it's interesting because she is this dominant figure. And so it's not just can she sustain her dominance. It's like who could get in the way of that. And I think there are a few candidates, but no one jumps out clearly. No one definitively. Yeah, that's that's that makes sense. Especially um, because we just haven't seen, you know, more than two or three matches even between them in terms of like of great relevance. I guess you could say maybe Sabalenka and Iga have played, I think they played like five times this year and four of them were like not even very competitive. And really the US Open and the year in championship were the two matches that made you think like, huh, this could be, this could get interesting. And I think she also beat her Iga last year in 2021. But, you know, it's, yeah, like, and I do think Sabalenka is one of those players who, yeah, like if she's in form and she's, she's hot and she finds her game, throughout the course of a tournament, she can be quite dangerous, but we also know she has some mental hiccups and obviously this sort of being a big challenge and kind of feels like she's been in the same place for a couple of years now as one of the best players to have not won a major. So 
yeah, it would be interesting to see if who the other players will win a major are on the WTA next year, especially Wimbledon and yeah, Wimbledon and the one the other one that Shantek, um, you know, doesn't win or maybe right. Shantek, it, it, it's three of them too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, so I mean, I, I agree. Wimbledon does feel pretty wide open. I mean, this year I thought Halep kind of had it with the form she was in, and then she got yeah. crushed by Rabakina. And then in the final, I thought Jabir had it, um, and Rabakina came back and beat her too, although I think Ons sort of suffered from some nerves. Um, There's a big game where she had love 40 in the deciding set and didn't um, convert there. Um, but yeah, that, that's the one I think that is momentarily safe from Sviantek. You know, she might lose it one of the three others or or even all of the three others but like those are hers to win if she plays her best and it feels like Wimbledon is kind of open yeah I also feel like there's so many wild cards on the WTA where I mean obviously we talked about Naomi but I think yeah one of the other my other takeaways from that match in Australia was like oh Naomi can do this again like she can she can put together a run like this yeah and we saw it in Miami and I thought that was going to be a springboard for greater things to come but Unfortunately, you know, the motivation hasn't quite been there. The, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of great things she's achieved already. Like having won four majors, been number one, done a lot, but it's just difficult to see or difficult to predict how much more tennis she's going to play in her career and how badly she actually wants this because it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just tough if you're not playing enough matches and you're not getting the reps and you're, getting really tough draws like Danielle Collins in the first round of the US Open for her. Yeah, that was tough. Um, you know, players like that. So I just, it, it's kind of hard to predict, but I just feel like she's such a wild card. And because her, because we've seen that she can do it and she's won four majors, you just have to always, I can never like count her out for that yeah. reason. Yeah. So, I, yeah. I mean, her peak on hard court remains incredible, obviously. Like, so I, I think this was Miami, but it may have been Indian Wells. Um, she played against Kerber earlier this year at one of those tournaments, I think. Yeah. And just, I, and I thought it was going to be a great match. Um, sat down, watched the whole thing, wrote about it. I anticipated that I'd be writing about like an epic and um, Osaka just destroyed her. Like Kerber's a great defender, but she was defending constantly. And Osaka's shots were so heavy that you couldn't even really defend against them. Um, like maybe you get one back and then she just puts the next one away. And so you watch that and it's irresistible really. Um, like there, there are no problems with her game. The serve is best in the world, probably. Um, the forehand is massive. The backhand can be like erratic sometimes, but at its best, it's insane. Like remember um, that match against Serena at the Australian Open last year? Um, that four-all game in the second. Um, she just hits like three backhand winners. Um, yeah. So we can catch fire like that. You know, the movement is not the best. Like she's still working out movement on clay, especially, but when you have ground strokes like that, like, you know, you don't need to be a super mover. Um, but like you said, it's the motivation. Like if, if you don't, and I don't even really want to use the phrase, like if you don't want it badly enough, like if you're not prepared to get in the mindset of like, okay, I'm going to grind for two weeks. Um, it's just not really going to happen. Like, I think we've seen that with Djokovic as well. Like th there is, there are no problems with his game, but when he's not, engaged um he'll have these really weird losses um like he looks slow um and it sort of seems like every part of his game will like suffer um because he's not mentally snapped into it so i, I think that is a huge piece of it um yeah. i he i hesitate to make projections for the rest of her career just because like she's on the younger side too um but i'd certainly yeah. like to see her back she's 25 i believe and 
she certainly, you know, if she wants, if she wants it, there's still plenty of time left and there's yeah. still, and, and, and we know like, you know, the women's game is deep, but her floor is also so high and her best on hard courts that you just can never, you can just never like rule out the possibility. And, and if she does call it, a, you know, if she does say, you know, I need a break or she needs some more time, it's like, I mean, can I really blame her? Like she's won yeah. four majors. She's well, welcome everything. to the hall of fame, Naomi. Yeah. <laughs> like, great career. Like, yeah. Yeah, it, it's like I don't really see. I don't think like I'm in a position to really, you know, judge her for that. Just because you know yeah. people are different, and this life isn't for everyone. And she is kind of an introvert at heart, and you know, it's just like she, she, the world is kind of her oyster. She can do whatever she wants at this point because, yeah, I mean, she's super rich. She makes so much money every single year based on endorsements, and she's marketable as heck because she's, you know, because of her background and because she's interesting and because, you know, she. She's in the world of pop culture as well as tennis. So I feel like there's so many avenues for her um, outside of the sport as well. But yeah. I feel like the longer she stays in tennis, it's just better for us. So <laughs> yeah, I, better I, for the game. Yeah, I mean, selfishly, I'd like to see her back. But from her perspective, like who's to say tennis is better than any of these other yeah. options that she has? So yeah, um, that was a long side tangent. I'm um, going back to the Australian Open. Um, oh, I guess now we're just going to cover the rest of the WTA right. while we're at it. Um, but I, I, but I, I was just going to say, like, you know, there are yeah. some other wild cards, right? Like you have Andrescu, for example. Right. So many losses this year to the eventual winner or to the eventual, like, you know, a few encouraging moments. Mm-hmm. But she never really got it, you know? It's one of those, like, I think she got to the final of Bad Homburg. She made, like, I think she played that really tight match against Sviantec in Rome. Like well, one first tie break. Set, at least. Like that first set uh, was like, okay, she's... So one tie break and then a bagel, I think, and then... Uh, and then I think Wimbledon, she lost her to Buckingham, and Buckingham ended up winning the whole thing. Right. Round two, I think. And then I think US Open, she lost to Garcia in the third round. Like I watched her in San Diego, she lost to Coco Goff, but it was like a really tight loss, pretty encouraging. And there's just like some of these moments, but she's not the same player she was in 2019, and it's taking a little bit longer. And, um, you know, fitness is always still a concern, but she is definitely one of those players you feel like if she puts together a good, six month stretch of consistent results the one big breakthrough will come yeah um i mean i think her main thing is just like if she stays healthy great things will happen because her game is awesome um i think the only other thing is like avoid unnecessary three setters when possible i think she gets dragged into wars by um slugfests by a lot of players so she has the game to beat like two and two or two and four um and and maybe that contributes to injury issues because spending so much time on court um that u.s open match against soccer comes to mind um not saying she oh, yeah, should that. have yeah, put that's... that one away necessarily but that was just brutal and um and yeah. it ended with her gassing out physically um although that's also partly because soccer is a beast and um but yeah i mean um another match i was just thinking of um was it, do you remember Halif cornet at the australian open when it was so yes, hot that Halif was literally stopping during rallies like she was like yeah. walking during rallies. It was insane. Um, and she almost still pulled it out. I thought she was going to, um, but that was a great match. Yeah, I thought so as well. And that was a great moment for Cornet because she had never been in a, yeah. I think she'd thought about retiring the year before and she'd never made a major quarterfinal. And it was always her goal in like 63 attempts. And she gave this like awesome on-court speech afterwards. I remember watching the end of that match. So physical, like you said, both players were just, you know, dead on their legs. Yeah. And yeah, like just such a war of attrition and some really good quality tennis in there as well. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I thought I thought that was amazing at the Australian Open and then also Danielle Collins' run to the final. 
Yeah. Because she had some really tough matches in there. I remember against, I want to say one of them was against Clara Tossin and the other against Lee Spartans. Like those third and fourth round matches, she was down like a set and a break. Mm-hmm. And like she pulled those out and then she beats Cornet in the quarters. And then of course she plays the perfect match, best match of her career against Fiontech in the semi. I mean, that, that will probably be the last time Fiontech gets demolished in a major like that for like five years. Like, yeah. I mean, not on grass. Um, I so I don't have the exact stats, but I think I remember seeing a stat that um Collins didn't miss a single second serve return in that match, and um and she was hitting winners return winners constantly. Um, it was yeah. insane. Yeah, and of course, I just love her bravado and confidence on the court. She walks up there believing like she can beat anyone, and mm-hmm. you know she plays like she plays that way as well. And, like she's been to an Australian Open semi, Australian Open final. I think Roman Garros quarters. Like she's got, she's got a really like. I think she's one of those flu players who can take like weeks off at a time because of her health, because she's going through endometriosis and, um, like yeah, she has the um. She has the. The health issues like on and off. Um, I remember after Wimbledon, she took like a long time off. And then just comes out and beats Osaka at the US Open yeah. and makes the fourth round. It's like she played maybe ten or eleven tournaments, but she still finished like inside the top fifteen. So I feel like yeah, with like somewhat of a more like depending on her schedule, like I, I feel like she's so she's so good that especially on hard courts now that she's like definitely still in the conversation for making deep runs. Yeah. I her confidence really impresses me too. Like I, I remember after the Australian Open final, she was pissed. Like in in that way where it's sort of impressive because it's like you weren't supposed to win this match, but like you're still pissed that you lost it and you felt like you should have won. Like because that speaks to um what players think their own potential is. I think um and when when they sort of believe they should have won matches that like they weren't favored to win, I think that's very impressive because it like they don't put self-imposed limits on themselves um and so i think like if she gets more opportunities to play in like big finals like that um she might get outplayed by a better player but she won't beat herself um and i think that is not the case for everyone yeah i think she also has arthritis which is like so she has like arthritis plus endometriosis so it's pretty amazing actually yeah she's able to do this like it's yeah that must not be easy. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, um, yeah, her Australian Open run still impresses me. Um, I'm I'm impressed that she just got ahead five one in a set against Barty because that was more than anyone else was doing. Um, yeah, like, um, so yeah, that that kind of stood out about the Australian Open, and um, yeah, we mentioned Kritikov already. I mean, I guess there's just some other players who showed like really good flashes of brilliance. Early on in the 2020s, like Mukova and Brady, I'm waiting for those yeah. two to. I I miss Brady you know, a lot. Get some matches. Her yeah, Brady has been gone for a long time now with a yeah. foot problem. Yeah, when when she had those matches against Osaka at the 2020 US Open and the Australian Open last year, so late in the tournament, um, playing at such a high level. Um, I mean, she was a top player on hard court. Like she was tier one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd love to see her back. Yeah, and then same with Sophia Cannon, who made who won the Australian Open in 2020, made the French Open yeah. final as well. It's a long road back for her. Long road back. Like she's completely fallen off the map. Yeah. Um, but 
yeah and then of course now now you also have players and then you also have players kind of stuck in their positions if you like still really high high ranked you know players like Sakari and Pagula Pagula obviously having the year of her life getting to world number three and losing to Iga three times I mean losing to Iga twice in majors and then Barty in Australia yeah and she was a consistent performer consistently getting to quarters and semis and I was happy for her when she won Guadalajara Mm -hmm. which was a 1000 at the end of the year and she beat four major champions and then beat Sakari in the the final Uh, but yeah Sakari is another one of those obviously she had disappointing slam results but she finished off the year really on a nice note um you know getting to the semis of the year and championship and yeah just lost a lot of finals like four finals this year Indian Wells final Guadalajara final so you feel like the level is still there she's a top eight player but just closing through in those in those big matches, it seems very mental with with Sakri. Yeah, I I really think it will happen for her at some point, but I think that point may still be like a long way off because this yeah. this pattern of beating herself in big matches at the end of tournaments is so defined by now. Um, and mm-hmm. I mean, her game is so good. Like there are no problems with her game. Like the serve is great. Yeah, she's so fit. Like strong on both forehand and backhand. Um. You know, obviously there are like a few things she could do better. Um, yeah. Like I think um, she played Iga in the Indian Wells final. Yeah. Yeah, I thought um, I thought Shiontek sort of exposed the lack of margin on some of her ground strokes in that one. Um, yeah, particularly her forehand. She likes to hit big uh, from the backhand side, inside out and inside in. And sometimes she doesn't quite give herself enough margin or sometimes she she's super physical. She's such a great athlete. So you feel like, yeah, with her movement and her her athleticism she sometimes tries to pull off too ambitious of shots on some occasions or tries to cut cut down the 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 rallies it seems very sort of she seems to sort of get in her head in that way and once she just relaxes and plays very freely like when she's down to the score then she becomes super dangerous i feel like she's one of the best when it comes to like saving break points ironically yeah, and, didn't, didn't she have a match in, against Pagula in Miami last year where she saved like six match points with winners or something? Yeah, and they were all with winners. And they were, you know, some of them were hitting the lines and some of them were yeah, just bold shots. But it's usually when she has leads or when she believes right. that she can win the title, that's when it sort of creeps up in her head. Yeah. And it feels like psychologically that, and that kind of affects some of her timing and technique. Yeah. And it feels like kind of interrelated, but... Yeah, but I think I think the game is there, like no doubt. She did make two major semis last year and nearly yeah. won the French Open. So right, yeah. I mean, yeah, I I really do think it'll happen at some point for Sakari. Like I think she'll win big titles. I hope so. I mean, there's there's quite a bit of scar tissue there, but you would hope, you would think with that kind of game, you know, at least she gets any kind of a title. That's pretty much all she's missing because she has only one career title, I think, and like mm-hmm. six finals, multiple semis. Like it's. At this point, I think it's, yeah, like she goes into these matches knowing these stats and it's yeah. obviously tough to block that out. But all, all it takes is just one. I mean, we saw what happened with Felix this year. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I think I think that's about it, especially from, uh, um, from Roland Garros. I remember on the women's side, it was obviously a, a player that we have to talk about is Young Shin Wen, right? Mm-hmm. Because she pushed, um, she pushed Iga the furthest. At the French Open, took that first set in a tie break, yeah, and then was a bit physically compromised for the next two sets. But really, she kind of set the tone this year that like, hey, I'm a, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be like the breakout player, mm-hmm. and watch out for 2023 because, you know, I'm inside the top 30 and I'm 
I've got a bright future and she seems to do everything pretty well. She's pretty yeah. well-rounded. I would say her, her game is pretty, pretty complete. I mean, obviously there's still things to work on, but I like her mentality and she seems, she seems quite composed and calm and yeah, like I don't really see a whole lot there. That's um, I, I think she can honestly get to the top five in the world and potentially challenge for these majors. Yeah. I, I mean, her game is sort of uniquely capable of matching Spiontek from the baseline, I think, because her ground strokes have that same weight to them. And she's also, um, like, willing to use that drop shot to, um, you know, keep her opponents guessing. And so it's hard to position yourself perfectly. And if you compare that to sort of the other players that Spiontek beat at Roland Garros, like, you know, I mean, as and these are great players, but, like, Kasatkina in the semis and Goff in the final had, like, nothing to hurt Spiontek with because they no. either didn't have enough power and so they would just get, like, overpowered from a certain wing or um, they would have an inconsistent shot and then Ego would force errors. And, um, yeah, and that is not the case um, in, in this matchup. Like, that, n- not just... Um, it's not just that she won the set, but she was sort of capable of like matching Shriantek throughout um, and ha- winning some of these toe-to-toe rallies, which I think is, I mean, other players can't do that. Shriantek is just sort of all-conquering from the baseline. So yeah, I think I think she's got a very high ceiling. I love her backhand as well. Like I remember her really matching Shriantek for that shot and mm-hmm. picking the right one to go down the line. And yeah, like, I mean... She moves pretty well. She's got a she's got a pretty good serve as well. So it's it seems to all kind of be there. Now it's just a matter of putting it all together consistently. And she did show quite a bit of consistency this year too. So it feels pretty safe to think that she'll be ranked a lot higher than she is right now. Yeah, I think. So. But um, yeah, and then and then obviously you have players like Ludmilla Samsonova. You know, made like deep runs, won titles, like got to the fourth round. I think she has one of the best forehands in the game as well. So it also feels like her game also feels pretty legit. She's also another one of those like junction when obviously a lot older, but you know, around 20 in the world, you feel like she'll probably be ranked higher at some point mm-hmm. next year, particularly that the, for her first half of the year was not that strong. Um, yeah, I mean, and then I, I mean, just yeah, going back to Roland Garros, obviously you have Coco Goff making the final there and. You know, having an overall pretty good year, U.S. Open quarters as well, quite a lot of quarterfinals, um, no titles, but you felt like she improved this year. Yeah. Um, obviously, didn't her year didn't end very well with the WTA finals, but kind of understandable for an 18 year old because this was the first year she could play so many matches with yeah. the age eligibility restrictions. Yeah, and and um, by the end of the year, like physically and yeah. mentally fried. Um, yeah, I mean, I. I think, like, really the only thing in her way right now, because, like, I think she's improved a lot. I think she's a great game. It's athletic, uh, great backhand, serve return, I think, are very strong. The forehand, I think, is shaky, but has a lot of time to improve. I think the worst thing is that she matches up terribly with Sriantek, who... And that's because of the forehand. She's, she's going to run into constantly. I mean, if... um, So they played four times this year, and... um. So in Miami, Sviantek won 6-3-6-1, in Roland Garros, 6-1-6-3, San Diego, 6-0-6-3, and WTA Finals, 6-3-6-0. Um, it's very hard to take a positive from that, from yeah. golf's perspective. I mean, she is younger than Sviantek, I think. She has a ton of time to improve all of these things, but I think as of now, like that's going to be a very, very difficult matchup to handle. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, she's not really coming close in any of these matches, and 
um, like none of them have been there's no, there was not even a flicker of hope in really any of them and yeah. I, I feel like the forehand yeah technically it's a little bit of a flawed shot in my opinion because she kind of like if you watch her hit it you know there's times where she's against you know players that she should be beating where she's really stepping in and taking it early on the rise and following it to net and I like that kind of play from her but then there's other times where she's kind of falling back hitting it on her back foot kind of hitting it very taking it late like hitting it really loopy like the take back is too long and you just feel like there's too many there's maybe a, a technical way for her to improve that shot but it's just you know and it would involve like changing the swing path or tinkering with that at such a young age and her the rest of her game is so darn good that it can sometimes make up for it and hide it, especially on clay. But it's just, I don't know, to win a major, like, like I feel like if she if she improves her forehand and just fixes a couple of things, she can win a slam. I, I just don't think it'll come next year. I think maybe in 2024, but I would say next year, she gets to like a couple of semis, stays, you know, get stays in the top five, keeps getting some big runs, hopefully wins a couple of titles or something that would probably qualify as a good year. But, but yeah, she's, she's kind of in that, like middle phase right now where it's just uh where yeah like it's gonna be more or less the same unless that one thing gets better right yeah i, I mean i i think a major title isn't out of the question if she doesn't have to play Spiontek really um because i yeah. i mean she did make a final um at 18 years old that's amazing um you True. know i i think it's just like certain matchups like that are gonna prove tough um but you know with so much time on her side um like I, you know, I think she will win multiple yeah. majors. Um, and, 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 and as far as her future is concerned, the stock is super high. So yeah. it's uh, it's just like immediate short term thinking right now. Yeah, I, I mean, she's three years younger than Spiontek. Like that is a lot, especially at this age. Like if it's a twenty four year old and a twenty seven year old, it's like okay, the twenty four year old has had like several solid years on tour, and Goff has had a few years on tour because her breakout was so early. Um, yeah. but she's still got so much time. I mean, she's got at the very least, like another solid decade of like prime years if she chooses to play that long and stays healthy. Yeah, yeah of course. And of course, on the WTA, before we, you know, start to shift things a little bit, you, I do have to mention Alicia Parks because she's been on a tear since, since the US Open. Obviously more at challenger level, like WTA 125s. She's won a couple of them. I also watched her in Ostrava where she qualified and then she beat Pushkova and Sakari. And I thought her game is quite impressive. She has a really big serve, um, moves pretty well, pretty dynamic athlete, um, covers the court well, you know, extremely versatile, likes to come to the net. Um, you know, she will have some matches where it goes off the boil and um, and it doesn't look very good. But then there's other times where if she's fully locked in and she's, I think, 21, 22, she just has a lot of confidence and momentum right now. Mm-hmm. Going into the next season in the WTA landscape, I think that's pretty valuable. Especially if we've seen players like Andrescu in the past in 2018, she went on a similar run like this, and then you know ends up winning Indian Wells and ends up doing all these great things. I'm projecting that Alicia Parks will do the same, but obviously there just have been examples of this in the past where players have this amazing rare thing in the challengers, and then it just kind of because they're so new and because they're they're in that honeymoon phase, it's just so hard for the established top players to to sort of game plan against them, right? And so I feel like she could come out out of the gates in 2023, maybe not directly in Australia, but I feel like potentially at some point in the hardcore events during the year, I could see her doing some some real damage. She's at 75 in the world right now, so her ranking jumped up like 60 spots in a matter of two or three weeks. So 
she's kind of like I, I guess if you want to make an ATP comparison, like the Ben Shelton of the ATP right now. So it's like those are just a couple of players to to watch out for. I would yeah, say. I, I I haven't really gotten a chance to see her play, but um, I'm excited to follow her in uh, in 2023. You know, ranking at 75 that means main draws at majors. So like opportunities to maybe make a couple um, more high profile runs. She'll have a ton of momentum, kind of like you said. Um, seeing on her page that she's um she's six one so um yeah i think um ideal size yeah yeah for the serve to get incredibly good um so yeah i'm I'm excited to watch her uh in the future yeah yeah that's right and the serve is the serve is quite a weapon like especially on those indoor courts i was watching her in australia she ended up losing to krajikova who ended up winning the title and gave her a pretty good pretty good second set but it was yeah, it was those two consecutive matches against Pushkova and Sakari that made me think, oh, okay, that's that's not a fluke. This is this is something she can actually put this together. So it will be interesting to see. I mean, yeah. uh, it's it's hard to predict, but um, yeah, the- yeah. And then going back to the French Open, I had Leila Fernandez as well was one of my stories because she, um, yeah, like she she unfortunately was out for the for a long time and had to miss Wimbledon after that run, but she ended up beating. Uh, Benchich and uh, Anisimova along the way, and she played that three-set match against Trevisan, and with like a broken you know, bone, with like a broken that. bone, yeah. And it was like very impressive because even though she lost that match, she just refused to give up. And in hindsight, it might have been better if she had retired in that match because it, it, it would have been. But it would have. I, I I get what you're saying. Like I I was in the stands for a part of that, and I mean, you like she's got that insanely rare quality. Like she she should have retired but she didn't and even yeah. with that massive injury it was close like she i think she was down to t- a double break and she got one back and then she got to 15 30 when trevison was trying to serve it out like she was still in that match and you know i don't recommend playing through injury i wish she hadn't done it i wish nadal hadn't done it at wimbledon but i mean her drive is nearly unmatched um i think she's yeah. got a, another very very rare quality where she can play it's sort of like what Djokovic has on match points, I think. Like, I think certain pressure situations, match points, like, she's got something that other players don't. She can play like the score doesn't matter. Um, and I think her I think her game is really unique. Like, she's one of the best timers, ball strikers. Um, she can take the ball early. Um, yeah, she's one of the players I'm most excited to follow in the coming, like, half decade plus. Yeah, and I also do feel like, yeah, you know, that definitely interrupted her season and I think she finished 40 in the world. But if I actually really look at her results, I mean, she won a title in Monterey. Her win percentage was not awful, considering it was her first year after making a major final. And it's a little bit, like, I guess it's kind of misleading and it's kind of tempting to put her in the same camp as Raducanu. But if I actually look at her year, she had some good moments. Like, And even at the US Open, I remember she lost the second round, but she almost won that second set against... Um, so who was it? Samsonova, I think. Yeah, Samsonova. Samsonova was on like a 13 match win streak at the time. So I felt like that was probably expected. But, um, nonetheless, I think, yeah, Fernandez is so young as well. I think she's even younger than Shiontek. So she's got a lot of time. And yeah, like I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised to see her in the top 20 at some, you know, next year because, yeah, she, assuming she's healthy and she's able to play a good schedule. But yeah, uh, and, and, uh, I don't know if she's totally ready to threaten for big titles regularly yet, but like I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if we saw her in the semis of the major or or threatening for a big title um, at some point. Because um, the way but, she was looking in Paris, I mean, 
she pulls out that Travis Sun match, that golf match is kind of up in the air and yeah. potentially she's in the fi- major final. Right. Probably wasn't gonna wasn't gonna beat Chiontek, right. but um, but nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, but I I think on the whole, though, like you know, there are a lot of players who can play it at an incredibly high level, but Sviantek yeah. is doing it by far the most consistently, and so I think there are candidates for a rival for her in twenty twenty three. But right now, it's Sviantek and then everyone else. Yeah, and then there's just so many good players that I'm just I look at them like, how have you not done better? But then it's like, oh yeah, that's why because there's all these other great players too. It's like, yeah, like you know, I think of like Belinda Bencic, like amazing, you know, like twenty nineteen makes the U.S. Open semis, like, plays that awesome match against Andrescu, like, you know, Olympic gold medalist, like, wins titles, like, has her really good weeks. And then I watch her in those really good weeks, and I'm just like, how have you not been past, you know, how have you not been past, like, the fourth round of, of like, Wimbledon yet, or, like, of the Australian Open? And it's like, or, or even Roland Garros, it's like, it, it seems like kind of low-hanging food, but then you actually look at the draws, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's... Yeah, like you, the, the you have to play like that consistently, like every match sometimes. Yeah. If you're going to get through some of the draws, I mean, and yeah, like I mean, remember um, when Radu Kanu had that random like two or three match hot streak in Cincinnati, and it was like, wait, is she back? Like, um, yeah, I thought so. Although Azarenka and yeah, Serena were way off their games. I, I, I list, but but yeah, yeah it's, it's like it that, just yeah. shows like the the level is still there. Like, I mean, she played she played a really good match against Stephens in the first round of Australian Open. Mm-hmm. And I think people, yeah, she she won that first round, and then I think she got injured in the second round against Kovinich. Like she had some. Yeah, blisters. she had to like slice her forehand. Um, yeah, but I was like, I was like, that was impressive because it's like you know you could have lost like six four six one, but you like tried to win, believed you could win, and didn't come through in the end. But like you learned a lot about yourself. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I, I also thought her clay season was like pretty decent. Like she 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 won quite a few matches, like five or six, and she. She played Shantek like pretty decently in Stuttgart. It was like four and four. Yeah, I, I there like some that. flashes, and then I think towards the end of the year she made a semi and won three matches in a row for the first time all year, and then was up a set on Ostapenko and then retired. So it's like, yeah. I, I think she had a lot of fitness issues as well. Like it was just tough to forget about like you know all the off court stuff and the expectations and all of that from the public. But it's just like just playing weekend and week out was just something she was never never used to because. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I think in a lot of ways, the farther away that U.S. Open title gets, the easier her path on tour will be. Um, yeah. Because that pressure will gradually go away. She'll get more experience. I mean, I think this year could be more productive for her than um, Me too, yeah. last year was. Um, because it is much more typical of like a year on tour rather than sort of one like massive bright flash at the end. Yeah, and it was encouraging to see that she is working with Jez Green, you know, who is Andy Murray's fitness trainer and so many countless of other players. So it's great to see that. I mean, I hope she keeps, like, she has that stability with the coaching situation and all of that. Like, they're trying some new things with, like, different coaches for each stroke. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, like, when, once she got rid of the coach that she won the U.S. Open with, there was already kind of signs of trouble. Yeah. Um, But regardless of that, I still think, I still think I wouldn't rule out, like, you know, her finishing between 25 and 40 next year in the rankings and maybe even winning a title at a 250 level or making a deep, maybe getting to a second week of a slam or something like that. I still feel like it's, it'll be much more of like, like you said, like a typical 25 through 50 kind of year. Yeah. I think so to to kind of round out this, this segment, because we're on pace to have like a two hour podcast. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Um, Or hour and a half or something. Um, I like, I don't want to do like, 
full predictions for next year, but sort of what do you think is going to happen with Sviantek? Like, what are your predictions for her? How much is she going to win? How is the rest of the field going to do in terms of challenging her? So I feel like because she has such a massive lead in the points, and she has like twice as much as Jabora, and she's won all of these things. Um, she does have a lot to defend, but she also has some... But I also feel confident in her defending a lot of it. So I feel like she's going to win at least a major, likely two. I think I'll, I think I might even go with two just because I feel that safe about her right now. Mm-hmm. I think she might win two majors. I think she'll probably win one of the Indian Wells or Miami, probably win Rome. She probably wins another hardcore 1000. It's like I, I see a similar kind of year, maybe not as dominant, but a year pretty similar. You know, kind of like a, like if this was, if Iga's year this year was like a Djokovic 2011, maybe she has a Djokovic 2012. Like I, I was just thinking that exact same thing. <laughs> like, where it's so like, like, still number yeah. one, just not quite as dominant. Yeah, I still think she'll finish the year number one. I don't see, I don't see anyone else yeah. doing it, really. Yeah, I, I think she'll be number one for all of next year, honestly. Um, yeah. And I, I sort of agree with you. Like, I'm going to say two majors. Like, I think she gets Australia and then probably Roland Garros again. Um, but yeah. I think I think she could win three even. Like, could, I, I yeah. wouldn't be surprised if she got everything except Wimbledon. I also wouldn't be surprised if um, someone took her out in Australia or she only won one major, mm-hmm. only in quotes. Um, but, like, I think three is certainly on the table. And then who do you think is going to win... Do you think any of Jabor, Sabalenka, or Garcia, or Sakari is going to win a major? One of those four. This or Krajikova. I'll, I'll throw Krajikova in there as well. This is so hard to predict because it's kind of contingent on, like, do they have to play Iga? I yeah. I think if they do, I kind of feel best about Sabalenka's chances just because I think she's the most capable of red laning and winning. But then mm-hmm. on, the, on the flip side, she's probably the least likely to win seven matches in a row in terms of the consistency of her game. I yeah. think Sabalenka and Garcia, I think, could do it, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. I think Jabur is probably a better player, but it's less likely to beat Sviantek head-to-head. Um, it's it's really tough to say. I honestly think the main deciding factor is going to be, like, where does Ika lose? And then who is going to be best positioned to swoop in after that. I I wouldn't back any of these players to beat her in a major final. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. She's yeah, I wouldn't either. 
I could see a situation where we have Jabor Sabalenka critique of all doing really well at Wimbledon and getting far in the tournament. I don't know who's going to, you know, I, I can't really say. Like, it's it's very much draw-dependent, but I do see Ego winning two slams, I think. Um, yeah. Um, I, I think Krajikova could get one. Um, I think her game is reliable in a way that maybe some others aren't. Um, like, I think I she good can, about her. Yeah. yeah. Like, I feel like she can go toe-to-toe with Iga. Like, not overpower her, go toe-to-toe with her. Um, and that could be helpful. Um, she can use the angles. Um, but yeah, it's... I don't know. It's it's really tough to say. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, of course, yeah, the way Shiontek won the US Open was just incredible. Like, you know, not playing her best, but coming through in those really big moments. And yeah. I think that would, that's what really solidified it um, for me. But I think that's pretty much it for the women's game. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. Uh, we missed some like some, maybe some of the good matches at Wimbledon, but I think holistically we covered a lot of it. Um, I think at Wimbledon, I mean, some of the best matches, Tan and Serena. Yeah. Uh, that has to be up there for sure. I think I thought that the match between, I think, was it Neymar? Niemeyer in the quarters. Um, I don't remember honestly. Yeah, like Niemeyer, I think was involved in it. Like there was some, there was some good matches in the quarters of that tournament. I want to say. I think it was, yeah, was it Niemeyer and Bushkova or something? No, I don't think it was that. Well, Wimbledon, I followed the least this year. Yeah, I didn't even watch. I, a lot I was of in, I was actually in India when this was happening, and I yeah. couldn't catch. I like, I had a blind spot for this part of the tournament, but. Yeah, like, um, yeah, some cool stories. Oh, yeah, it was Maria. It was Tatiana Maria. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. But yeah, that was, um, yeah, Wimbledon, I don't think, I, I guess the final was pretty decent. Yeah, um, had drama, for sure. Okay, um, but, yeah, and then, of course, US Open, we we had the Sabalenka Ego semifinal, so that... Yeah, that, that was, was, I mean, Sabalenka being up 4-2 in the third, that was... Those last four games were wild, and sort of her suffering a really tough semifinal defeat at the U.S. Open for the second year in a row. Um, yeah, very similar loss to Fernandez in 2021. Um, but yeah, um, do you want to move on to the ATP? Um, yeah, for sure. Cool. I have to so eat dinner, so I probably have less time for this. But um, if yeah, yeah, so um, you know, the first ATP match that came to mind for me when you asked that initial question was actually Alcaraz Berrettini. Um, in the third round and um, while Alcaraz didn't win that I feel like in a way it was sort of prophetic of how the rest of the year was going to go because he showed off so many impressive signs in that match where it was like even though he lost it was like he's coming for everyone yeah sure that definitely foreshadowed everything because he was too set to love down and the way Alcaraz really turned that match and was by far the better player for sets three and four and even a lot of set five until the tie break um, yeah, and then I, I guess Berrettini showed off like the impressive forehand and serve and the reliability that he has in majors to, you know, and in the clutch moments, he didn't make a single unforced error in that tie break. And probably I, I would say his best win so far in a, in a major um, at that yeah. point. I, and uh, the um, one and he's been to a major as well was good because that one he was up two sets as well and had to win it in five. Yeah, so I think, yeah, and even though Alcaraz lost in the in the first three majors of the year, I mean, those three players played some of the best matches 
like the best match of their life in a major to beat him. Yeah. So I think that's yeah, and then like you said, it did spark off that incredible run, um, especially from Rio and Indian Wells and Miami. I mean, he should get a trophy alone for winning that second set against the Dalit in the wind in Indian oh, Wells. That was nuts. Um, um, that that was a very good match yeah. for a lot of the time. The and Nadal hitting all those volleys in the third set from like reflex positions. Um, that yeah, that one was fun. Um, I, I I really think that was the best stretch of the year overall during Shvantec's win streak and Alcaraz's kind of at the same time yeah stretch. <laughs> um, yeah, because they were both like so electrifying um, in the highlight reels. Um, yeah, I mean I, I, Alcaraz was really the face of a lot of that first half of the year for me i mean you yeah, had nadal. alcaraz and nadal as well yeah 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 i mean like nadal obviously because he he won the two majors but um sort of in that stretch between that um with alcaraz winning miami and madrid um it was really like okay he's gotten here a lot faster than i thought yeah not to go on a tangent here but that was also a really good advocate for why these exhibitions really don't mean much in the larger scheme of things because yeah. they all played those exhibitions didn't do well then lost to andy Borey, lost to Shapovalov, then right. goes on his late match winning streak and oh he gets COVID God. right after he lost uh, to andy murray i forgot about that um, yeah it was in that exhibition and whatever yeah. they, they play in abu dhabi or I think is where it was, yeah. And then, and then he just goes on this twenty match winning streak. And you know, most people still didn't think he was going to win AO. Right. One because of the draw. Obviously, you had the uncertainty about Novak not being there, but he, they still put Medvedev ahead of him. They still thought Zverev was going to beat him. They right. still thought, um, you know, those three matches at the, in the ATP two fifty were not going to be enough. Yeah. They thought Shapovalov had him after he won the fourth set. Even he had a heat stroke. Looks tricky for a little bit in the fourth set. Um, right. And then so he had that, and then in the final, no chance, you know, yeah. two sets to love down, two, three, love 40. We all know what happens, right. but it's like uh, just the improbability of it all combined with all the Djokovic fiasco that happened before. It's just, you couldn't script it. Like it's, it was, it was one of those stories that you just, I mean. Yeah. I, I mean, they, they should really make like a movie out of it or the Australian open YouTube yeah. channel should do like a hour long feature on it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I rewatched the whole final and basically summarized every point for popcorn tennis. So if you want to read my thoughts on it, you can go there. But something yeah. I something I came across when watching the match is that now famous like four percent thing um, of the win predictor that actually oh, came yeah. early in the third set. Like I think after the first game when Medvedev held after saving a break point. So that means it would have been even lower at two three love forty. Like probably two percent one percent at that point. Um, the amount of ground he had to make up to win that match is insane. Um, and kind of conversely, like it's become emblematic of Medvedev's year, really. Um, that was as good as it got for him. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then of course, you know, you had the, the Indian Wells run uh, to the final. He was on that 20 match win streak. I think he was down and out against Korda, like 5 2 down in the third. That's right. Yeah. Break. Somehow survived that. Yeah, like somehow survived those matches against Kyrgios in the quarters, Alcaraz in the semi. It was just, it was the best start he's ever had in the history of his career from a yeah. statistical standpoint, winning yeah. twenty matches in, in a row. You know, as, as bad as you can feel for like a one of the best ever with hundreds of millions of dollars in prize money, I did feel bad for him that he didn't get Indian Wells because I, you know, it was a very impressive run to the final, yeah. and then. You know, he didn't make a huge deal of it at first, but then I think he said in an interview it felt like he was getting stabbed by needles in the midsection when he would... He was quite. A, he was in quite a lot of pain, particularly towards the end of that match, and he still... Yeah. 
I still think Fritz had to show a lot of gumption to win it because he himself oh, yeah. was not feeling his best. Second he also had his ankle. He also had his ankle numbed before the yeah. final, and then ended up having to pull out of the entire clay stretch. So it, that one, that match was strange because they were both struggling physically. Yet, you know, Fritz Nadal was struggling a lot more physically. It looked like than Fritz was, but it still felt like you know such a big match because then they would go on and they'd play at Wimbledon. Uh, yeah. What? Oh my lord! set tiebreak and Nadal having the injury there, and then it was like, and then they met met again at the end of the year. But so that's one of those matches now where I'm curious to see, see where that rivalry, I guess, takes takes us next year because yeah, it's now has two wins. It it'd be great to see them play at the Australian Open. Really, um, I think that could be a really fun quarterfinal. Um, may, maybe even a semifinal. But yeah, I. You know, I think sort of a sneaky part of Nadal's winning streak that I think was up there with like his most impressive moments was um that semifinal with Medvedev and Acapulco. Um right. Which he won six three, six three, but he had to save all eleven break points he faced. Um in the second set there was a stretch where Medvedev was holding easily. And Nadal at one two saves four break points, and then at two three saves seven break points. And there was a oh, yeah, there's a stat at one point where like Medvedev had played thirteen points on serve in that set, and Nadal had played like thirty. And uh, and I think yeah. at one point he had played like fifty points on serve. I know there was a twenty point game, um, but he got the holds, and then um, or no, he was already up a break when he played those games. But um, but he got those holds, and then in the last game he broke from forty love down. Um, and so when he won that, that felt very emphatic because Medvedev was number one at the time, first meeting, only meeting since their Australian Open final. Um, yeah, when he did that, I was like, I you know, he's already had a good year, but he's gonna have a good year. Right. Yeah, that was that was maybe level wise his best tournament. Now that I think about it, like from start to finish. I mean, obviously not the same level of opposition as like from Medvedev, but mm-hmm. still a pretty big, emphatic um, statement, I guess, to the rest of the tour. But yeah, and then, then I mean, it was marred by injuries as well. I mean, the match against Shapovalov in Rome. And before that, he still had those epic matches in Madrid, coming back from the rib injury against Gofan, where he Go saved <laughs> I feel like everyone's like forgotten about that one just because so much has happened. Like it was a big deal at the time, but like I, you, know, you just reminded me of it now. It's like, yeah, that happened. Um, it's kind of interesting to see how the year has shaken out because, you know, Nadal definitely the face of the ATP that first half winning both majors. Um, and, you know, injuries had a big hand in this, but then the second half of the year, he really sort of fell away and it was, um, yeah. and then other people like came to the, the floor. Um, I feel like the second half of the year was much more Alcaraz and Djokovic. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of like a year of thirds. They all had their stretches of domination, and it was just, it was like, yeah. Uh, and because Djokovic, obviously, from Rome to the end of the year was phenomenal. Like, he won five titles and yeah. lost the one final to Rune in Paris. But apart from that, he was... And the one Davis Cup match and the Roland Garros quarterfinal. But apart from that, it was mm. it was pretty much his to lose. And then you also had the Alcaraz stretch until Wimbledon, and then you had you had the Nadal first half of the year, and then at the end you had like Felix and Rune and all these other players, Rude as well, making his mark. It was like so it was it was kind of like you could make a case this year for like either of those three being player of the year, and I probably would say yeah, you you probably have a good point, but just. 
the fact that Nadal pulled two ahead and yeah. still beats the same race, I think that's very significant because yeah. you know, just him having won those two majors, it's it's like for the other two to have had a, a really strong argument, they would have to do like a lot more outside of that. But it was just the fact that he was able to win those two, I think, is 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 pretty big. And he did finish off his year with a with a win at the ATP finals, and then I think we're not talking about the foot anymore. That's the other thing. Yeah. It's like at the end of the his treatment is working. Yeah. Yeah. Like that seems to be working so far. It's still probably a concern because of his history and given everything in the back of his mind. And we still don't know how much longer he's going to play and all of that. What we do know is that um, if he could win the French Open this year, then I mean, what's to say that he can't win it again next year? Like, I'm exactly. Not, <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> that has been the case since 2005. So, um, right. And then just the fact that he still made the semis at Wimbledon, having not played on grass in three years, and that he won the Fritz match. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. I'm still mad about the whole way that unfolded. Like, it sucks that he got hurt and he couldn't play the semi, because a Nadal-Djokovic final there would have been amazing on many levels. Um, And I want to sort of focus on Djokovic for a minute, because you said, like, since Rome, he's been phenomenal. And that's true. But it's really interesting to me how I think in arguably the most significant match he played this year, which is that match against Nadal at Roland Garros, mm. he didn't quite have it. Um, he didn't have it. That's and true. And I think that's the first time he didn't have it in like a really big match. I mean, you know, you've got the U.S. Open final last year. Um, but I think that one he had the excuse of being physically and mentally fried. In this match, like he had destroyed four opponents in straight sets. He was rested. He had just won Rome. Nadal had more on his legs. Like Djokovic was actually favored. Um, and he didn't really I I think he played well for a lot of the match, but I don't think it was like a typical Djokovic performance, like a lockdown performance. Um I think he probably still regrets that one. Yeah, particularly the way the fourth set unfaltered with the two set points that he had, particularly the way the fact that he gave Nadal such a big lead in the fourth set tiebreak. Mm-hmm. Um that he pretty much had to Hail Mary his way back. To get to six four, and then, um, and then yeah, like the first set, such a slow start. The second set, he had a red line. Third set was not good. Yeah. So it's like he he had all these dips, and then you know I think the crowd also was was bothering him, like the reception that he got when he first came on the court. Right. There were all these other factors, and I think at that point, I don't think he the relation his relationship with Nadal was really good at that point because. Uh, because of just like you know he didn't think that Nadal supported him in the in the whole Australia thing. That was yeah. weighing on his mind. It's just, uh, you know, and then he knew the importance of that match because if he wins that, you know, then, then yeah, the winner of that was pretty much essentially going to win that tournament, especially when Alcaraz lost. I still yeah. felt like, I mean, you never know because Zverev was playing the best major he had played until that point, but it's still, but you still would have favored the winner of whoever won. And just, yeah, historically it was a pretty big match, but I still think like come again next year, usually by the time Rome comes around, Djokovic is still... Either he's still right behind it all to win Golden Garros. Yeah, yeah I, just I wouldn't rule out him winning. It, it's just like but... it was just kind of restored again from 2021, and it, it all showing that like yeah, you beat me last year, but this isn't the norm. Like we played ten times, and I've beaten you eight out of the ten. Right. Yeah. Um. But yeah, just just the way that match unfolded was really interesting to me because I think like the first set you can say Djokovic started slow, but I don't think anyone ever was going to win that set against Nadal. Um, and then the second set, he pulls out from 0-3, 15-30, double breakdown. 
Um, yeah. And then the third set, he just like wasn't really a factor. And I remember watching that, and it's like you're gonna let this set get away this easily and back yourself to beat Nadal at Roland Garros from two sets to one down. Like, really? Like, why are you doing this? Like, um, I thought it's sort of 2013 where he lost the third set of their semifinal there that year, six mm-hmm. one. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, and he came back and almost won that one. But yeah, I don't know. I think for vital stretches of the match, he wasn't quite himself and that was very costly. So I, even though they've played there a lot and they haven't really played on hardcourt, I want to see them play again there next year. Um, just because every match they play there is different. Um, and it's all interesting to me really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And still like the level in that match was still probably good enough to be a top five match of this year. So, I mean, like it was still better than, you know, you'd still probably rate it higher than even the fourth round, even though Rafa did get pushed up to the fifth set. I felt like the fifth set of that match was amazing. But yeah, it was so it wasn't, uh, but it was a very different type of match in that it was much more on the Felix surplus one and uh, kind of maneuvering the doll around and the doll had his dips in that. But then the way he finished in that fifth set really carried over, I think, in the, into the Djokovic match. He really felt good about how he needed to play. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's he's felt that way in all three of their last room Garros meetings. He's always come off to a really quick start. Yeah. And I think it's, I think Nova can't allow that to happen the next time they play because. Um, he did it once in 2021, but it's just right. not, it's just not sustainable. You know, you have to redline to get your way back. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I agree with you that it's, you know, he can't really afford losing the first set, but at the same time, like, does he have a choice? Like, I mean, you look yeah. at Nadal's level in those sets and it's like, what are you really going to do? Like redlining perfectly out of the gates, I guess, but that's so hard to do. Like just not feeling yeah. any nerves. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and yeah, and so Nadal goes on, wins the title, very comfortably over Casper Ruud. Um, yeah, who you know, in his own right, he had a yeah, he he made the French Open final, had a great breakthrough, played some good matches against Rune and Chilich, and um, you know, got past the third round, which is a big hurdle for him. And I'm thinking about it now; he didn't even have a good clay season until Rome, because he got to the semis of Rome and then he won. Geneva and then he made the French Open final but before that was really kind of mediocre like he didn't have yeah. any good results until Rome until Rome, wasn't he down two sets to one at some point he was like in yeah the early round yeah in the in the third round against Sonigo he was down two sets to one right but yeah but yeah he yeah. got out of that and then I think he had a four setter with Hercutch oh yeah in the I, first I, round he also I retired Sanga I forgot about that so easily yeah he, he beat Hercutch even though even though Hercutch was up a break in the fourth and you still felt like Rude had a decent chance to get this. Yeah, I, I, I remember a lot from that match. Basically, Rude wins the first two sets like he's playing a junior, and then in the third set, Hercot wins a highlight real point. Crowd goes crazy. He gets a set out of it, um, and then once Rude recovered in the fourth, that was that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Casper Rude is going to be interesting for me next year because he didn't play the Australian Open. Yeah, he didn't really have a preseason because he's, he's been... probably world number one after the Australian Open, isn't he? Yeah, I, I mean that's that's what I'm thinking. But then it's like, yeah, like he has to have a really good result in Australia. Probably has to have a really good result at Indian Wells. Probably has to defend most of his Miami points. But then after that, his clay stretch was kind of mediocre until yeah. Rome. So then it's like, and then you know, yeah, and even after the U.S. Open, I guess is in another other spot in his calendar and. Mm-hmm on grass but like so as good as he was this year with those big runs he kind of had moments where he 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 lost a few matches in a row or he wasn't 
you know, he kind of went in and out for a bit, but like, yeah, I mean, he has a, he has a decent chance just math wise and points wise um, along with Djokovic, of course. Yeah. I, you know, I think this sort of segues nicely into the Australian open because, um, you know, Rude didn't play Alcaraz lost early, so he can pick up points too. He's already world number one. Djokovic didn't play like is Djokovic, you know, Nadal's defending champion. Is Djokovic going to win the Australian Open? Like, because I think, I think he is a big, pretty big favorite. Like, yeah. I think if he plays his best, no one can beat him. Um, but I don't know whether he'll play his best. And I also wonder if, like, an Alcaraz Medvedev one-two could take him out. Yeah, you do wonder about sort of the cumulative effect that these best of five matches have on Djokovic um, at this point in his career. Like, just because, I mean, let's say he gets like a really tough fourth round, but then a really tough. And he gets like, you know, a Medvedev in his quarterfinal or like a Alcaraz. And then he gets, and then he gets like, uh, yeah, like if he has an Alcaraz Medvedev combo, like you were saying, or he has Perfect. a really tough yeah. fourth round. And like it's, it could be like the wear and tear of the fourth round quarter semis. And then maybe he has a day, doesn't have, like he has a really long extended semi. Like I'm still kind of curious to see whether he still has it in him completely physically after these long breaks. Like you still have to prove it again. He is the favorite. Just because he's never lost a semi, never lost a final, he's won this thing nine times, mm-hmm. um, and he he looks like the best player in the world right now. But um, nothing is for certain right now, and he does have, you know, a decent amount of a decent amount of challengers, like more than Shiontek does, I would say. Like it's like it's, you know, at this point, maybe Wimbledon is is is, is the one that's the safest for Djokovic Definitely, to win. Definitely, <laughs> uh, I think I think no he's probably more likely to win. <laughs> I put up a poll and 70% of the people said he's more likely to win Wimbledon than it is to win Roland Garros just cheap, just because of the number of contenders. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It's, um, like, yeah, I mean, Wimbledon, he's won four in a row now. Um, and yeah. you know, 2018, 2019, he was very close to losing. And I guess this year as well, it's down two sets to center. Um, yeah. but besides those moments, it's all felt very comfortable. Yeah. So I think, I think he is a favorite, but. You know, like I can't say like hundred percent. Like it's not, uh, it's not like a shoo-in. Yeah, I'm excited just to see his draw because if it's like Medvedev in the quarters and Alcaraz in the semis, I don't know. Like that could be, I I think Alcaraz or like a chance of Sinner or Rune in the fourth yeah. round or like a Kyrgios in the third round. Like it doesn't seem like it's like they, they could be tough bats there. Yeah. This is reminding me of like my Djokovic hater days. I'd be like, okay, I hope the draw is bad like every round, and then I'd look at it and be like, oh, he's gonna destroy everyone. <laughs> yeah, but then I also like then he also just has those random moments where in the fourth round, like in twenty sixteen, he goes five sets against Joe Simone, and you're like, I didn't see that one coming. Or like he'll lose a set in the first like these majors, like he never wins one without dropping a set. Like he's always right. lost one he's always lost one set. And then you get to the semis in the final and you're like, Oh yeah. Now it's like he's gonna win. Yeah, <laughs> he's gonna win the semi. He's gonna win the final. It's like in Australia, one was insane. Like because he yeah. was like totally struggling, massive abs. And now he's just like, oh, I'll just lose the first set, and then I'll come back. And it's like okay. he keeps doing it again but, and again. Now, but, but yeah, that was that was something I was thinking. Like even if he do, if he does win, I can still guarantee you he will lose a random set to someone at some point, <laughs> probably more than one. And usually he knows what he's doing because he's pacing himself energy-wise and he's mm-hmm. strategic sometimes about letting a set go. And then just like when he, he has this like ironclad ability to play his best tennis when it matters the most. And it's like, you can't really teach that. Like it's just, yeah, 
he just has that level of mental toughness, I guess, and combination of experience yeah. and going for history, which he's not shy to admit. So that's good. Right. Yeah, I, I think he understands himself so well. Like he knows he has that switch that he can flick and just become perfect. But I think he also understands that once he does, like the light bulb will burn out after a little bit. And so he knows that like until he flicks that switch, he's gonna have to be like shaky sometimes. Um but then once he gets to the point where like, you know, the semis or like break point in the final or whatever, then like he's just gonna be in God mode. Yeah. And, and yeah, like the other really interesting player is going to be Medvedev. Like, how does he do it at the Australian Open? Because he's defending those final points and he's number seven. It's crazy to see a seven next to the game, but... Could he drop out of the top ten if he goes out early? Yeah, I, I think some other things would have to happen, but it's pretty likely. Like, if he doesn't defend... Like, if let's say he loses in the quarters instead of the instead of the final. Like, he's already dropping almost a thousand points. So yes. Yeah. Um, and it's not like... It's not beyond possibility, right? Like, do you think he'll make the final again? Like, I don't really think so, as of now. Yeah, you can't, you can't really say with any confidence. Like, I mean, maybe I'm confident he'll get to the fourth round, but that's about it, really. Like, it's not, you know, it's not very... Like, we'd, we'd have to see... A, I'd have to see some some good performances from him leading up to the Australian Open, if he does yeah. play. Like, I think he's playing, in the, he's playing in Adelaide along with Djokovic and Felix Rune and Sinner. Like, they're all playing in that tournament. So that'll, that'll be a really good field for a 250. Yeah, sure. Like, that's... Um, but yeah, I, I think all the same, Medvedev is still a compelling like character in the Australian Open because yeah. it doesn't really matter that he's not at his best. Like if Djokovic gets him in the quarters, like that's not going to be easy. Um, you can't mm-hmm. blast your way through that match, even though he did in the 2021 final. Um, I don't know if he could do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to take a lot out of him. Like you remember him like literally shaking uh, in their best of three match in the world tour finals like i don't think anyone wants to play that for in best of five um but they're gonna have to right um but yeah like he's gonna have yeah he's still gonna have um like yeah like you said it's still gonna be a super tough out to beat him just because like with that level of return and that serve and that backhand and that octopus like movement it's just gonna yeah. be really hard to yeah, like you, 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 the you can't hit through the guy. You have to hit around him, and you have to, you know, expose some of his other flaws. But they're really hard to do because, mm-hmm. yeah, I, and I think yeah, it's, it also comes down to his mental state and what he decides to do in the big points. Yeah. Um, but don't hit drop shots. I I'd suggest that. <laughs> Yeah, and don't hit an underarm serve on match point for crying out loud. But yeah, God. I mean, I, uh, we need to do an entire episode about that moment at some point because that was, uh, yeah, or, yeah. But you know, it's yeah that that's just what what happens. Like Medvedev is a little crazy, but it's just yeah. I think that's part of the appeal of watching him. <laughs> yeah, th- there's a method to the madness most of the time. Um, yeah, but yeah, kind of um, kind of moving into predictions a little bit, like. What would you say are like the surest things about twenty twenty three, like Djokovic winning Wimbledon, um, stuff like that? Yeah, I think I can still say that Djokovic and Nadal will finish in the top five. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I think I, I think that's a pretty sure bet. I think I think just some combination of Djokovic and Nadal win at least two of the four majors. I think that seems kind of sure. Um, I'm saying two instead of three, but you know. Interesting. Could be three. Um, so uh, just, to be, just to be just to be safer. Else. Just to be safer, but yeah, I, I still think I still think three is more likely than two. But. Okay. Um. 
So if it is two between the Australian Oak and Roland Garros and Wimbledon, which one do you think goes to uh, an outsider? Oh yeah, then it would have to be Australia because okay. I just think I just think Djokovic has uh, still has the advantage on grass over, over the experience factor and just like the tear that he's been on, he tends to win these things in bunches. He's already won four in a row. Plus, he's going to try to go after Federer's record of eight Wimbledon's. He's going to try to equal that yeah, next year. Insane. He, he's probably going to tie that next year. And um, in 2018, he's three. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So I, I feel like it's going to be the hardcore ones. And of course, the US Open feels like the most open one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where you could see someone like a Felix maybe winning or. Yeah. I or maybe Alcar is repeating. Yeah. Alcar is repeating. Maybe Felix getting one. Um, yeah. I mean, and then you, yeah, then you do also have a numerous, numerous, a lot of other wild cards and. You have a lot of young younger players from next gen 2.0 coming up with like mm-hmm. likes of Jack Draper and Brandon Nakashima, Sebastian Corda, yeah. you know Ben Shelton, who's won like three challengers in a row and became the youngest ever player to do that. And he, his ranking went up from like 600 to 96, so he's like just shot up. And he could be another one of those, I guess you could say Jensen Brooksby of this year, but like <laughs> the increasingly problematic Jensen Brooks. <laughs> Yeah, Brooksby is another one who who's really kind of plateaued, hasn't he? Because he, yes. yeah, he he's another one who, yeah, like once once you get a scouting report on him now, now you kind of now you feel like okay, he doesn't really have a whole lot of offense. But with Shelton, I feel like that that could be a little different because he has a he is lefty, he has a really big wide serve, he has some um, you know sustainable patterns that he can repeat over and over, and he has a big forehand, likes to come to the net. He seems pretty athletic, so we'll, we'll see if like how long that carries over and where his ranking is at at the end of the year. But yeah, you just have some some players in the mid-range there. And then you have Tiafo who's capable of going going on really big runs. And mm-hmm. yeah, so yeah. there's, you know, exciting. Like you have some wild cards. Yeah. You still have the problematic Kyrgios and Zverevs, but they're, but you know, you can never, yeah, like it's, you know. Yeah, I mean, c- kind of on, on Tiafo, like best year for the American men, in like how long like I, I feel like 2023 promises to be like between him and fritz um yeah. and some others like i you know they're dragging american men's tennis is dragging itself from like the bottom of the pit to like the side of the pit you know what I mean? yeah it's just like the number of american men now that we have in the top 50 it's quite a lot now like it's almost one-fifth of the of the tour is american men mm-hmm. like in the yeah i think i think tiafo and uh fritz are still are still my two at, at the end of next year that I think will probably finish the highest still. But yeah, and um, I, and but like I, Sebastian Corda, if he figures out like if he just gets a little stronger and if he starts serving bigger and he starts getting a few more consistent results, I feel like he could break that mold. But I agree. Um, I, then I'm interested to see also what Nakashima does because having won the next gen finals, I mean, like yeah. that's proven to be really big for a lot of these players. And he almost beat Kyrgios at Wimbledon. And he could have been in the final there. So it's like. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is not a good time. I think kind of like on the WTA, like if everyone's healthy, we could be headed for some majors where the fields are like stacked. Um, and -hmm. we're getting great matches in like the third and fourth rounds and not just, you know, the last couple. Um, that's yeah. Especially because like the top 10, I feel like it's loaded because like some players who are in the top 10 right now are not going to be there next year. Mm -hmm. Like Herkutch, I mean, he's going to have to, he's going to have to step up a little bit. Oh, if he wants to be in the top 10. I think Rublev will also have to, you know, have another really good year again. Yep. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, 
yeah, I'm like curious. Not have some have a really big result outside of, you know, outside of winning titles at two fifties and five hundreds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, can he make the the major semis for the first time? Yeah, um, like a major semifinal would be a really big breakthrough for him. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he wasn't far away from that at Roland Garros. Um, yeah. you know, took Chilich to the brink, but I think you know, as as good as Chilich was in Paris, like I think major quarterfinals are usually going to be tougher than that. I would say. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think I think Djokovic gets Wimbledon. I think Nadal probably gets Roland Garros. I mean, as much as everyone has improved, like the best shot to beat him there is still Djokovic. I, I'd put Alcaraz like a hair behind at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Djokovic probably gets Australia. Yeah, it, it's interesting because like even though we have the next gen coming on finally, and um, you know Alcaraz is there, Runa is improving really fast. You have Sinner, you have Felix, you have a bunch of great players. Like. I think there's still a pretty likely scenario where Djokovic wins Australia and Wimbledon, Nadal wins Roland yeah. Garros, and then then it's just up to like you know how many more, how many how many of the Masters one thousands can you get? How many of the other titles can you win? And it's like yeah, yeah, and and those those will be those will be, will be decided by mostly the tier two players, and it's like you know like Sitsipas. I'm curious to see like does he have a really good clay season again? Does he mm-hmm. does he back up his semifinal from Australian Open? Does he do better at the U.S. Open? So like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it feels like a b- pretty big year, I would say, for the Medvedev's Tsipras-Vera generation overall, yeah. just because they're they're gonna have to, yeah, they're not only coming up against Djokovic and Nadal, but the but the the generation behind them, which is like, yeah, yeah your Felix Alcaraz, Rune Sinner, it's like, yeah, I I think the pressure on Rude is a little lower just because he had such a great year, like this was his best year by far, and I think the others regressed. Um, but I I totally agree. Like for that block of players, like. Even though they're in their mid twenties, like time's running out, you know. Um, yeah. Like you, Rude, like you had such a good year this year, but I sort of wonder, like, can he equal that? Like, you know, is yeah. this was this? It's going to be hard to back up. It's going to be hard to. It's going to be hard to see, but then, but then, like we said, like there's so many other openings where he didn't play like his very best, so he'll have to take advantage of those, I guess. Yeah. But like, I, I feel I, better about him, maybe. Than I do about Tsitsipas and Zverev, and I wouldn't have said that two years ago. So it's yeah, like... I, I feel better about him too. Like I, I don't know if his game is better necessarily, but I think he's become a better player at least for the moment. Um, just solid mentally, if, and uh, and and you, you have to respect the rate of improvement because he was eight last exactly. year, and he like his backhand is not a weakness anymore. So right. it's like he, he's become like a great defender. Um, like I, and I think that's the difference between him and those two. Like he. I think has made much more tangible improvements. I think Tsitsipas yeah. and Zverev have not changed that much in the past few yeah. years, really. Um, yeah. Right. So it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Like, yeah, I, I think we, I think we can predict a lot of this, a lot of the same players would be in the top 10, but it's, it's possible. Like we have one or two surprises. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I feel like even Fritz could like, Here's my like hot take about the Americans. I feel like one of Fritz or Tiafo could get in the top five, maybe. I feel like the the bottom end of the top five. Yeah, I feel good about Fritz because he still has such a low hanging fruit at the majors. Yeah. Um, like especially the U.S. Open. Like, man, if he plays that match like ten times, he doesn't lose. So it's like he, he's got to avoid matches like losses like that, like in the first round to Brandon Holt. Yeah. Or like, um. Like he he didn't even play for a lot of this year and he finished number nine. It's like 
Yeah, and, and it still, only went really deep at one major, so. Yeah, which was Wimbledon, right? And then Australian Open, yeah, he had chances to win that match against Tsitsipas as well, mm-hmm. so it's like, yeah. yeah could, I, I think he should gain points there. Yeah. Yeah, and but, then same with same with Felix, because it's yeah. like, yeah. It's, Felix could get in the top five. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be shocked to see him in a major final um, next oh, year at Wimbledon or U.S. Open because I feel like he's yeah. Some of his losses at majors have been very encouraging. Yeah, um, I'm excited for um, where his rivalry with Alcaraz goes as well because that seems to be a pretty yeah. good matchup for him. Um, so if, if they were to meet like late, and I'd like to see it in best of five. If they could meet in a late round, that'd be awesome. Yeah, and like at a major again because yeah, we didn't get to see what would happen that. U.S. Open match that took place, and then the other two matches have been on indoor hard court. So it'll yeah. be interesting to see outdoors on the other surfaces. How does that play out? And of course, Alcaraz coming back from his oblique tear as well. <laughs> right. That that I think is a huge factor because I think if he comes back to the Australian Open playing like he did in that Miami Madrid stretch, besides Djokovic, it's his to win as much as anyone's. But if that doesn't happen, then it's a lot more up in the air. Yeah. It's crazy because Alcaraz to me is also the most improved player of this year. And it's yeah, like, definitely. he went from 32 to 1. And so he went from a guy like, you know, how many people just get like stuck in the middle? Like they're like, we get stuck between like 10 and 15. And they're yeah. like, oh, can he do this next year? And it's like, you have to go step by step by step. But he just like eclipsed all those steps. And now he's like, you know, now he wants to win Wimbledon and he wants to win, get the other two. And now he wants to make it. And he was like ranked sixth by like the middle of the year, right? Yeah, like in 2030, he's going to be 26 years old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a like just saying that alone makes me laugh at this point. Yeah. It's like... I, we got so lucky with Sviantek and Alcaraz. Like, I, I mean, especially for the ATP, because you had you had Federer retiring this year, and then you had so now it's like you know you have the big two, and then you have this guy who's who's off that same mold, if you like, of like greatness, and it's. And he just he just filled in the spot. It's like, yeah, you know, it's amazing. And you would obviously, you know, you would love to see team get back there. You'd like to see Wawrinka yeah. squeeze out the last one or two years that he has left. Same with Andy Murray, of course. But it's just, uh, yeah, I, I feel like the tour is the ATP is in a really good spot because of because of this Alcaraz burst that they got this year. Yeah, I I think in some ways like. And, you know, if Djokovic and Nadal split the first three majors of the year, this will not happen. But I think in some ways this year, like with the retirements, it was sort of like, and, you know, Alcaraz coming up, it was sort of like the start of something. And I wonder if next year is going to be a bit of an indicator of like how the next few years will go. Like next year feels big. Yeah. Yeah, And especially because Djokovic and Nadal are not playing that many tournaments. And exactly. you would expect you would expect the same thing again next year, to be honest. So there's going to be a lot of opportunities for players at the Masters 1000 level, at the 500 level. And, you know, if Alcaraz does those early, who's going to take advantage? Who's going to mm-hmm. step up? It just, it makes it so exciting, I think. It's, yeah. 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 I'm I can't wait. Forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> I can't I'm wait. Sure. Of course, we have United Cup coming up. And Nadal's going to be playing in that. We could already have a Nadal Kyrgios potentially by the end of this year. And it's like... Then we could too have, soon. yeah, too soon for that kind of drama right now. But, yeah. but I mean, yeah. And then after that, we have the Adelaide tournament. We have a, mm-hmm. you know, some board tennis, and then Australian Open starts. And it's just all going full swing again. Yeah, yeah. Let's. I'm excited to get into it. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, on that note, um, I think I need to go eat dinner. But um, 
Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was good to, uh, to recap some stuff and, uh, and look ahead. Um, it, yeah. Um, it was quite quite good because we covered so much. We did cover a lot. This is almost two hours, really, or an hour and a half. I think, um, it, I think we did well to keep it under ninety minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I will. Um, I'll end the recording. Um, but, um, but yeah, to our listeners, um, you know, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, uh, you know, Happy New Year. If you're listening to this by the start of 2023, um, keep up all the great uh, engagement on social media. Follow us on Twitter. Follow Popcorn Tennis. Um, yeah, follow me at Bunch V2K, follow you at, at Tennis Nation, follow uh, Andre at Rollenberg Andre. Um, make sure to check out his work for Tennis Canada as well. And uh, yeah, uh, and yeah, feel free to rate, comment, subscribe, like all of that jazz on, on podcast platforms. And yeah, continue listening in 2023 because we'll have some more episodes. Oh, and we'll actually be in Australia. So hopefully we'll get some in-house content Hopefully. from uh, we'll of course yeah we're um, not making any promises there but we're yeah. definitely uh we're definitely looking forward to have one of our team members there um yeah i mean um like with this sort of thing i don't believe it's going to happen until it's happening so like when when i'm there absolutely like we will do podcasts but like right now it still feels fake in my head so um yeah hold up what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 